0: Well, Colossians 2, 8 through 15, you just heard that. Pastor Lonnie did a little children's sermon out of it, so I don't have any footballs or little monster cars for you this morning. I'm sorry. But um, but we're going to talk about Colossians first. We've been in the book of Colossians for a while now, and we've seen some different things about the Colossians, at least the, the Colossian church. Um, we see that... Uh, They had a strong faith in Christ, in Jesus. We see that in in 2 verse 5. But what we're going to look at today is really the reason why Paul was writing this letter to the Colossians, and that's the fact that other things were creeping in to that church. It's called the Colossian heresy. Now, Colossae was famous for its vast array of temples and, and superstitious practices. It was, basically a, it was basically a golden corral of God options. And you could find temples and religious practices for anything that you felt at the moment, better health, fertility, prosperity, protection. So the religious custom in Colossae was to assemble whatever package of superstitions and rituals you wanted to fit your needs. You could almost call it a -a Build-A-Bear theology. Whatever you want, you put it all together and bam, there you have it. Well, the Christians in Colossae understood that they were not to worship in pagan temples. Uh, But the general mentality of religious pluralism had influenced their approach toward God. So many of them assumed that in addition to faith in Jesus, you needed other things. You needed other rituals. You needed other practices in order to gain spiritual stability and spiritual power. Furthermore, many of the Colossian Christians had grown up as Jews under the law, and many of them believed that if you wanted to be right with, if you wanted to be in touch with um, his power, you had to observe a lot of the old Jewish laws and tradition. So what was going on here was that the Colossian church was being infiltrated by an eclectic blend of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism, all combined together with a Christian flavor. In other words, like many of the cults today, it wore the mask of Christianity, but was totally false. It used Christian words and Christian phrases, but with different meanings. It claimed to have something for everybody, but in essence had nothing for anyone. Think of it like this the Colossians had a Jesus plus mentality. They didn't discard Jesus. I mean, like I just said in in chapter two, verse five, Paul actually commended them for their strength of their faith in Christ. So they didn't discard Jesus. They just thought they needed other stuff in addition to him. Jesus plus the observance of the law. Jesus plus mystical rituals. Jesus plus. In other words, this philosophy taught That Christ was insufficient, and one had to go beyond Christ into the fullness of what they had to offer. We find the same thing happening in many of the man-made religions and and churches and cults today. They take some truths about Christ, and they add to them. They use some Christian terminology, but with completely different meanings. And that equation leads to disaster. Disaster. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Paul's answer to the Colossians and Paul's answer to us is a simple and emphatic no. Christ is enough. In Christ, he says, we possess the fullness of God. Christ showed the ultimate love, conquered our ultimate enemy, and now sits at the ultimate place of power. So once you have him, You have it all. It's not Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So, how does Paul explain that? Well, he gives three main things that we as believers must be aware of and that we must follow. Number one, believers must guard against false teachings. Believers must guard against false teachings. Beginning in verse 8, Paul makes it clear that Christians must be on alert against false teachings. You see his words there. It says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, the word philosophy can refer to any sort of outlook or philosophy of life. Typically, when we think of philosophy, we picture guys like Aristotle and Plato and Descartes and David Hume, guys— like that who studied epistemology and metaphysics and all the sorts of things that college philosophy classes make you study and some people actually enjoy. Um, I know Ralph is in it right now, and he's not enjoying it. But that's typically what what we think, but this is something much more narrow, something much more specific. This is an outlook or a philosophy of life that has been developed by combining Christianity with a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of pagan belief, and it's been pawned off on these people in Colossae, and Paul doesn't like it at all. In fact, he calls it empty deceit, vain deceit. There is nothing to this teaching that is being offered to you, and he says to be on guard against that. And he gives us three marks of this sort of false teaching, this sort of philosophy. And you see it there in the next phrase. He says, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. In each of those three phrases, Paul gives us a description of the trademarks of this false teaching. So first notice it's based on human tradition, guard against human tradition. In other words, Paul says it's man-made. This refers to whatever systems men invent, whatever ideologies, philosophies, psychologies, theories, religions. Everybody's got their own idea of God and truth and Christ and how the Bible fits in or how the Bible doesn't fit in. Philosophers and and authors and playwrights, uh, novelists, movie producers, talk show hosts, psychologists, sociologists, religious leaders, everybody has their opinions about everything. But if they're not built on the word of God, they're nothing. That's what Paul was saying here. This teaching is not based on the word of God. It's not based on the words of Christ. It's not based on apostolic teaching. It's man-made. It comes from outside of Scripture. So you understand what he's saying here. Don't let anybody kidnap your mind. Don't let anybody kidnap your soul, seduce or plunder you by philosophy or by the study of wisdom, by human reason. Don't let anybody move you away from Christ by views and values that come from human reason. This philosophy is empty deception. Paul says, you be on guard against anyone who comes to you with a teaching that cannot be grounded and substantiated in the word of God. Guard against human tradition. Then, next in the phrase, he says, to guard against the elements of the world. Guard against the elements of the world. Now, this is a difficult phrase to interpret, and theologians and commentators disagree, disagree as to exactly um, what it means. Now, it may be that Paul is referring to ethical principles of behavior, um, which are too simple for the mature spiritual adults that the Colossians are supposed to be. Like they have doctorates and they're thinking like kindergartners. It may be that. Or Paul might be thinking about a particular teaching that says there are demonic spiritual beings who control elementary principles in the universe, like the stars and the planets and such. And those stars then control our lives, kind of like astrology where there are people who believe that the positions of the planets and the stars actually control their destinies. And it may be that these false teachers then say that we can exercise power over those. If you, if you follow our secret knowledge and our secret teaching and our secret rituals, we can, we can have power over these spiritual beings who are controlling the stars and the planets and the suns and the, and the moons. And therefore, we can control our lives and have fullness and freedom through the control of these. But Paul, in regard to that thought, Paul is saying, you don't need to follow that teaching because Christ is over all things. He's over the stars. He's over the elements of the world. He's over the spiritual world because Christ is head of everything. You don't need this new teaching, he says. So any teaching which comes to you saying that we have a way of controlling the basic principles of the world, just say, I don't need it. Because my Lord's already in control. So we need to guard against the elements of the world. And then a third thing he says, he says to guard against anything not of Christ. Guard against anything not of Christ. In other words, anything that doesn't measure up or changes or just completely contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency of Christ's saving work. Given what we've seen so far, they definitely suggest that something needs to be added to the work of Christ, but they don't line up with the gospel. When Paul says, you be on the lookout for those types of theories, and you just reject them, reject them. Family, that, that is just as important for us today as it was for the Colossians, because there are just as many religious philosophies, if not more, today than there were back then. And there are probably more Christians today who are likely to blend their Christianity with these other false teachings than than there were back then. And we're not talking just about health and wealth prosperity gospels, because those are dangerous. But there are churches, very popular churches, that distort the gospel by taking away from it, by changing it, by adding all kinds of experiential things and practices that could be and should be Classified as outright heresy. There are churches that have embraced the Eastern practice of meditation where you empty your mind in order to reach enlightenment, in order to experience the Spirit. That's not biblical at all. In fact, we are commanded to fill our minds, not empty them. God calls us to be a thinking people. Isaiah 118 says, come now, let us reason together. Deuteronomy 6.5 tells us to love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and soul. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and is there if there is anything praiseworthy, think on those things. We are to fill our minds, not empty them. There are also churches who encourage laying on the graves in order to absorb the anointing left behind by the deceased. I guess it's just kind of hanging there, and you lay there and you absorb it. There are churches that believe that there are great angels hidden all over this world, sleeping, just waiting to be woken up. They tell stories about going into places and saying, wakey, wakey, and these angels come out. I'm not kidding (laughs) you. Now, while those seem pretty obvious and and bizarre, there are many churches who are much more subtle in their deception, such as the attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. The natural conclusion of looking at the Bible, which was written by man, is to think it must contain errors. But Scripture clearly states that it was inspired by God without error. David said the law of the Lord is perfect in Psalm 19.7. Jesus proclaimed that God's word is truth in John 17.17, and that not a jot or tittle will pass away until heaven and earth passes away in Matthew 5.18. Scripture clearly, clearly teaches inerrancy. But many churches have embraced secular wisdom over the revelation of Scripture, which includes not believing in miracles. And by not believing in miracles, that means they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. We need to guard against anything not of Christ. Because it's out there. And it's deceptive. So Paul's warning to the Colossians really is a warning to us. Are we on guard against false teaching? When we read articles and books on religious subjects, are we on guard to make sure that they square with the true teachings of the word of God? Do we get our ideas of God from just from every place under the sun? There are many people today who would be like, wait, you could just go and learn the truth about God from any source that you want. According to Paul, that's not true. He says if it's not in line with the word of God, then you don't listen to it if it claims to give you teachings from outside of Scripture, and if the teaching doesn't line up with the basic doctrinal teaching about Christ, you reject it, you turn it off, and you'd be on guard against it. Not only that, we must not only be on guard against that teaching, but we have to know the gospel itself if we're going to be able to know the difference between the real thing and a counterfeit. If we don't know Christ how will we know when someone is teaching us something wrong about Christ? How will we know about Christ if we don't study him as he's presented in the Word of God? And how do we do that? It's by, st- by spending time with him in his Word. If we're not actively pursuing a relationship with him, then we're not growing in Christ. The more time you spend in the Word, the more you will desire to be in the Word. It, it creates a desire, a, a passion, a burning. And our greatest desire should be to know Him more. Paul's words here are very important for us. He says, be on guard. Be on guard. That's the duty of every Christian, not just pastors, not just deacons, not just teachers, but every Christian should follow the example of the Bereans in Acts 17.11. The Bereans heard Paul preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ, and they went and they examined the scriptures daily to make sure what he said was lining up with scripture. That's how we need to be all the time. Be on guard against false teaching. That's the first thing that Paul says in this passage. Secondly, believers must remember who Christ is and who we are in him. They must, believe, they must remember who Christ is and who we are in him. In verses 9 and 10, Paul turns our eyes to Christ, and he reminds us that, that we Christians must remember who Jesus is and who we are in him. If, if we remember those two things, we'll be unlikely to fall prey to false teachings. Notice again his words. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every roller in authority. So again, Paul tells us three things that we need to remember in this passage. In each one of those phrases. The first is this. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. In this context, he means... In Christ are found not just the attributes of God, not just the works of God, but in Christ is found the essence of God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. He doesn't just look like God. He is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. He doesn't just do the work of God. The the essence of his being radiates from him. There's nothing ungodlike about the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. And any teaching about Christ which says less than that is not the teaching of Scripture. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So even if people say, oh, well, you know, he was a good prophet, or maybe he was a great teacher, they don't honor him with that. He was not merely a great prophet or a great priest, or a great king, or a great teacher. He is the Son of God. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Paul reminds us of that truth because if all the deity dwells in Him, why would we need to go anywhere else to experience the fullness of life and salvation? Why would we need to go anywhere else to experience the fullness of forgiveness? Why would we need to go anywhere else to experience true freedom other than our Lord Jesus Christ? The fullness of God is in him. And that truth by itself ought to strengthen us against being being taken captive by deceitful and empty philosophies. But, But there's something else that is utterly breathtaking. We are complete in him. We are complete in Him. We have been filled by Him. Christ, full of deity. Christ, the second person of the Godhead, full of deity, fills us. If you really try to wrap your mind around that, you can't. Let's just put it that way. Christ can hold all of the fullness of deity, and we are full of his fullness. Think of it like this. Think, and maybe this isn't a good analogy, but we'll try it anyways. Um, Think of standing on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean, and here you are, tiny little finite dot in front of this seemingly eternal abyss in front of you, and you have a jar, and you lean over, and you let the ocean rush into that jar. In an instant, that jar would be filled with the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean. But you could never put the entire fullness of the Atlantic Ocean in that jar. But yet, the Atlantic Ocean is in that jar. So thinking of Christ, we realize that He's infinite. We are finite. We are just specks compared to Him. He can hold all the fullness of deity. All that he is is God. But whenever one of us takes our little tiny jar of our life and we dip it into him, we become full of him. I mean, we could never be full of everything that he is, but all that he is is in that jar. And we are filled with his fullness. In other words, we are complete. In him, you have been made complete. There is nothing that we need to be spiritually grown and prospered and matured. Other than what's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us what each moment requires. He gives us wisdom, strength, courage. There's no mediator between him and us that we need to go to. There's no method which he doesn't provide for in his word. There's no means which he doesn't provide for in his word. Christ himself is everything, and there is nothing, nothing which needs to be added to that for us to be complete. We are complete in him. And finally, he says in that passage, he is the head over every ruler and authority. All authority is in him. All authority is in him. He's the source of all life that exists. He's sovereign over it all. All powers, all authorities, all governments are under his lordship. All sufficiency is in him. That means that all that we need is in him. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. If we don't know that our sufficiency is in Christ, we will seek our fullness in other things. It may be through false doctrine. It might be through drinking or drugs or video games, friendships, dating. It could be anything. We may seek to find our fullness in things that aren't necessarily sin, but they become sin when we try to make them our fullness. They become sin when we make them idols. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 5. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. See, what he's saying is, don't be enslaved to the love of money or the love of things or the love of stuff. Instead, be content and satisfied with God because he is our fullness. Or what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty one and 32, he says, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He says the world is constantly running after things. They are always coveting, always wanting more, wanting food, wanting clothes, wanting this, wanting that. But we shouldn't be that way as Christians because we have a Father who provides. We shouldn't be running after the things that the world says that we're missing because we are already full, already full in Christ. Fullness of life is in him. We are complete in him and everything is under his authority. We must remember who Christ is and who we are in him. Thirdly, believers must remember the benefits of being in Christ. Believers must remember the benefits of being in Christ. And that leads us to verses 11 through 15, where Paul works out the specific benefits which flow from our being in Christ. Now, I can't tell you all that those two words mean because you just can't. It's it's unfathomable about everything that what in Christ means. But Scriptures speak of it, of being in Christ, with a variety of different analogies. Sometimes Christ uses what he means by, uh, illustrates what he means by talking about him being the vine and us being the branches. Sometimes Paul talks about us being a building, and each of us are the collected parts of the building, and Christ is the cornerstone. Sometimes Paul uses the metaphor of a marriage and speaks of our being united to Christ, as a hu- as, as a husband is to a wife. Sometimes Paul uses the metaphor of the body, and Christ is the head, and we are the body. But over and over, these images of being in Christ are used in Scripture. And Paul says in this passage that if we will understand what it is to be in Christ, we will not fall prey to false teachings which profess to offer fullness, and we will be grown in the faith. What is it to be in Christ? Well, it doesn't mean that you cease to be who you are. When you marry a person, you don't cease to be who you are. You continue to be who you are, but you're united to them in a relationship, in an intimacy, in a closeness that you never had before. When we are in Christ, we enter into a a relationship with him where he is ours and we are his. And where all the benefits of his life and his death flow to us. Paul is going to talk about some of those benefits of being in Christ in these next couple verses. The first one you see is that in Christ, we have salvation. In Christ, we have salvation. Here verses 11 and 12 you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Historically, God had marked his people. He had marked Israel with circumcision. It was an external marking of belonging to God, And one of the big debates in the first century was whether or not a man had to convert to Judaism, whether or not he had to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. Now, Paul, Paul is strongly, strongly against this. In fact, in Romans 2, 28 and 29, he explains that the external marking isn't necessary anymore. And in the end, he says God has circumcised our heart. He owns us internally what he has done is not an external marking anymore it's an internal transformation so the point of him saying that we have been circumcised in christ is that god has made us his own we as believers as ones who have responded to the to the work that christ did on the cross have been adopted as sons and daughters of the most high god And this is a profound truth. We have been circumcised in the heart. It's not done by hands. It's not an external identity anymore. So I am Greg Knapp, son of God. I am not Greg Knapp, choir director. I am not Greg Knapp, associate pastor. I am not Greg Knapp, diehard Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I am, but that's not what we're talking about here because I'm not defined by those external actions. I don't need to physically look a certain way. Those aren't truths that define me anymore. I'm defined by this. I am in Christ and I am his. I am his. So that way, if anything is taken from me, then I'm still on solid ground. It doesn't matter what's taken from me, my health, my strength, All those things that people say to define me. It wouldn't matter if any of that changed. The thing that would remain is that I am his. That's my identity now. And that's your identity now as a believer. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Because of the blood of Christ. Then Paul explains how that works. Look at verse 12. verse 12 brings us back to what? What does verse 12 bring us back to? It brings us back to the gospel, back to the gospel over and over and over again. It's the gospel that we have been buried with Christ. We die with Jesus Christ, all that we have been guilty of, all the wickedness that we have done, every error in thought, every wicked action, every dark motivation, every bit of it goes on and dies with Jesus Christ. Then at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's what happens in baptism, not the physical act of water baptism. That's just a symbol of what happens to us spiritually. We are buried with Christ into his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. That's the gospel. The good news that we've been reconciled to God and that God is going to be enough regardless of our circumstances. That's the good news. That's the first benefit of being in Christ that we have salvation. That's a huge one. In Christ, we have salvation. Next, you see in verses 13 and 14, that in Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have forgiveness. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Paul is saying that because of our sin, we were condemned. We were dead in sin and condemned to die. As we looked at the law, we saw that we didn't measure up, and therefore Paul says we're judged. That's a nice, easy way of saying it. But I think it kind of leaves out the gravity of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We have been made alive We have been delivered from that curse in Jesus Christ. Every one of us in here deserves death physical, instantaneous death. If you're here, if you're alive, if you're breathing, even if you hate God, even if you don't believe that there is a God, you are here only because of the unbelievable grace and mercy of God. Because we're all guilty of disobeying God. We're all guilty of treason against God, of stepping all over his glory. We're worthy of instantaneous death, but instead, instead we're here. I'm here. You're here because the record of debt has been canceled. Christ died and nailed the certificate of guilt, the certificate of death, the bond which had been placed against us because of our sin. He nailed it to the cross dying in our place, and by dying for us, we have been made alive through the forgiveness of sin. Paul says, you are in Christ, you are forgiven of your sin because he paid the price, and our record of debt has been canceled. In Christ, we have forgiveness. Verse 15 goes on to say, to talk about the third benefit of being in Christ. In Christ, we have freedom. In Christ, we have freedom. It says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in, in him. Paul was saying that these false teachers, they, they come to you and, and they tell you, we can give you power over these spiritual forces which are coming against you. But Paul says you don't need that because Christ already has power over them. He already has dominion over those spiritual forces because at the cross, he disarmed rulers and authorities set over against the rule of God. He led them in a triumphant procession. Now, if you were in the Roman world at the times, at these times, the the generals were going out and they're conquering all these these nations on the uh, far-flung nations and thing is, is you wouldn't have Fox News, you wouldn't have CNN, you wouldn't have any of those types of things there reporting and showing and talking to you about these great victories won. So the only way a Roman general could show you that he had really won a great battle was to parade all the captives, all the prisoners in front of your eyes. He would go out to the frontier, he would defeat these barbarians, and he would put them in shackles, and he would march them back into the city. The great soldiers would come first, then the conquered king. And then behind him, all the captives, all the prisoners, all of them in shackles and chains. Paul is saying that that is what Christ has done to the spiritual forces that are against us. He has led a triumphant procession in which they are brought along behind him as captives. As prisoners in chains. Now, Paul says if Christ has done that, what in the world are these teachers doing telling you that they can give you authority over these these spiritual forces? Christ has already exercised this authority over everything. And your freedom is assured because of his victory. You're not a victim in this world. Of any demonic forces. You're not a victim in this world of the alignment of the stars and planets. You're not a victim in this world of fate and and outrageous claims of fortune. Because Christ rules the world. And he rules his people. Because he is Lord, you are free. Being in him brings fullness and forgiveness and freedom. If we embrace Christ by faith, we will will taste all the benefits of being in him. But if we reject Christ, or if we attempt to add to him, if we do not put our trust in him, we do not receive all the benefits which are stored up in him. If you're here this morning, and you haven't received Christ and put your faith in him, I beg you on behalf of Christ. Christ. Be reconciled to him today. Cry out to him and ask for forgiveness for your disobedience and put your faith and your trust in him. And then you will experience all of these benefits. You will experience salvation. You will experience forgiveness. You will experience freedom in Christ. Don't leave here this morning without talking to somebody about that. But for those of us who are here this morning in our believers. Let me ask you this. This morning, are you guarding your heart against false teachings which reject the sufficiency of Christ? Are you adding things to the work that Jesus Christ has already done? Are you making things of this world more important than Him? Are you embracing in appreciating everything that you have in Christ. It's all, it's all in Christ. Everything that you need is there for you in Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Jesus plus nothing equals everything.